Bibles, please, to the book of Job, chapter 12. While you're doing that, I would just remind you that next week is the first Sunday of the month, and so it will be Communion Sunday, but it's also when we have the men and women's meeting uh, afterwards, so keep that in mind. Today is our 15th study in the book of Job. And I mention this and just to give you some comparison. I, I've told you before about one of the Puritans who is known uh, for his sermons on the book of Job. Uh, Joseph Carroll, who lived in 1602-1673, preached on the book of Job for 24 years. Um, his sermons have just been reprinted this past summer in a 12-volume set. John Calvin preached 159 sermons on this book. We will not spend that much time in the book of Job. It is an amazing book, and yet in many ways a difficult and trying book. It, uh, there's much to learn, but not always uh, a lot perhaps that uplifts us. And I don't want to overwhelm you with, with the darkness of this book. And so the Lord willing... After next Sunday, which we will finish uh, Job's response in the first cycle of speeches, we will take a break from the book of Job. Uh, don't know how long, perhaps two to four Sundays, we will examine the issue of friendship, uh, which has come up in the course of our study of the book of Job. Uh, three friends come to comfort him and instead add to his misery. And, and Job very specifically accuses them of failing uh, in their friendship. Uh, we'll look at various issues. Um, what is the place of friendship in the life of a human being? I think uh, having friends is, is definitely a part of being a human being. But in the 20th century, I, I think from the mid part on, friendship is seen as something unnecessary and almost quaint and oftentimes utilitarian. Um, I found a great proverb, uh, an, an ancient Egyptian proverb. An onion with a friend is like a roast lamb. I don't like onions or lamb, but I really like that proverb. I mean, if, if all you have is just an onion, but it's with a friend, it's like having a feast. I mean, friendship, I think, is critical to being a human being. And yet something, sadly, that our society, I think, really is lacking. But then we will look at what is the proper place of friendship in the life of a Christian, because we are not only uh, citizens of this society, part of this society, but we are part of the kingdom of God. And does friendship have any place in the kingdom of God? Uh, within the family of God, when every, where everyone is our brother uh, or sister, uh, doesn't friendship sort of elevate some over others? And uh, is, that, is that appropriate for God's people? And then what about the place of covenant with friendship? We've seen that briefly in the book of Job, that, uh, that friendship is something important and something, I think, uh, that has a covenantal aspect to it. So, I don't know how long we will be with that, but then comes Advent and Christmas and New Year, and the Lord willing, uh, the, after the beginning of the year, we will return to the book of Job. Okay. Today we come to Job's response to the third friend, that is the Zophar. And just some things to note as we begin. I've mentioned this before, but when Job responds to his friends, the, his response generally has two parts. First, where he deals with his friends. And then secondly, where he deals with God, sometimes in a direct address to God. In, in this third response, 
We find that Job defends his skills and his wisdom to his friends in uh, chapter 12 and the first part of chapter 13. And then in the second part of 13 and then chapter 14, he petitions God that God would hear his case. He's been doing that all along. So the two parts, the friends and then the address with God. And today we will look at Job's defense of himself to his friends. Secondly, we have noted that when you take Job's responses and put them together, there is a progression, either up or down, how you want to see it, that he is on a pilgrimage of faith. His first response, he is angry. In his second response, he is in despair. And here, particularly when he addresses God, we see him as being filled with terror at God's absence and God's presence. Because I think both have those aspects in our lives. Thirdly, Job's response here is more than simply a response, and it's longer than what we've seen thus far, because what he says in these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, triggers the whole next round of speeches. So he's not merely responding, he is, but he says something here that just sort of sets his friends off, and then once again they begin to rail on him and attack him for the things he has said. Fourthly, Job is different in this response, I think, than what we've seen him thus far in the book. I think he has Zophar to thank for this, though certainly not Zophar's intent. Um, but as one writer puts it, Zophar's insolent, childish, know-it-all confidence really gets Job going in this particular section. As one author puts it, one cannot call another an empty-headed donkey without expecting a response. Zophar had hoped to shame Job into repenting, and instead, he has awakened him. And one can almost hear, as you read this section, Job getting stronger and stronger. We almost forget Job's physical infirmities and his distresses, uh, his emotional difficulties. Um, as one writer puts it, we hear a new Job. A new Job is speaking here. Let me quote an author. Jolted out of his emotional turmoil by Zophar's icy spite, Job displays in his final speech in the first cycle a calm or a measure of calm control and lucidity of thought that is as welcome as it is unexpected. Thus far, he's been all over the place emotionally. And here he's very clear. He's calm. And there is a, a lucidity to his thought that is really quite amazing. In the first part of his response, Job addresses his friends and we find him voicing complaints against them. One in the first part of chapter 12, or that's where he begins his complaint, and then in the first part of chapter 13. You may remember that last Sunday I said that Zophar came out blazing against Job. Well, Job returns the favor as he begins here in chapter 12. It, uh, one author calls it scathing sarcasm. Um, but he's not merely speaking to Zophar. He is speaking to all three friends who think they know so much. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Uh, and we'll read through to verse number 11. Then Job replied, Doubtless you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughingstock to my friends. Though I called upon God and he answered me, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. 
The tents of marauders are undisturbed and those who provoke God are secure, those who carry their God in their hands. But ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Job's friends, as they speak to him, come across as though they are know-it-alls, as though they are wiser than most and certainly wiser than Job himself. They think themselves almost to be the only people with whom wisdom resides, and when they die, then wisdom will die with them, that they are the repository of human wisdom, and when they're gone, then the human race will really be in a sad condition. Uh, I don't believe in paraphrases, but if I were to paraphrase, if I were writing this, when Job says, uh, doubtless you are the people, I think I would translate it, you are the man. It's like, in modern terms, you're the man. They come across as though we know. We know what's going on with you, Job. And Job says, listen, I have a mind as well as you do. Okay? I am not inferior to you. But he goes beyond that and says, who does not know all of these things? In other words, what they have been saying to him for all of these chapters is pretty much common. I mean, this is, this is what people know. This is common wisdom. Common sense, if you wish. Um, it doesn't require any special insight. What requires special insight is to actually think about Job's situation and to figure out why this is happening. But they're just sort of they're just saying what is what you would hear on the street from me. Oh, someone must have they had a difficulty. They must have done something wrong. Uh, what Marie said in, in Sunday school today, unconfessed sin. There's something going on. You don't have to be a, a rocket scientist. You don't have to be wise to know that. Everybody says that type of stuff. Job resents his friends, I think, and it comes really clear in this first complaint. Because he is mocked as someone who dares to call upon God. I have become a laughingstock to my friends. They called upon God and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. I would think that one of the qualities of a friend is that they don't laugh at you. I mean, particularly in difficult circumstances. I mean, I think it's good to be laughed at every once in a while, but certainly not in Job's situation. The friends are the ones who should be loyal and standing by him and not laughing at him and even mocking him. By the way, there was something that really troubled me about this particular passage where Job says, though I called upon God and he answered. And one of the things that we've noted is that God hasn't been answering Job. But Job is speaking about the past. That in the past he called upon God and God answered him. That Job was a righteous and blameless man. A tzaddik, a righteous man. And now his friends, rather than standing with him and shoulder to shoulder and being loyal, they in fact are laughing at him as is everyone else. Even his close friends mock him. And there is something really terrible about human nature that it almost seems to delight in the fall of those who are great or those who certainly are above our station in life. 
And I think Job perceives this delight in his friends. How the mighty have fallen. Uh, And look at you, Job. But he also resents them because of their attitude toward his misfortune. He says, men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. Those who suffer or those who do not suffer cannot share the pain of those who do suffer. And they do not understand not only the suffering aspect of it, but the disdain with which other people look at them. Those who are disabled, for example, or handicapped, find that people avoid them or talk down to them or assume oftentimes that whatever disability they have goes beyond merely that thing. I I know that a number of blind people have complained that people talk loud to them. It's like, you know, I'm blind, I'm not deaf. You know, but it's something about human nature that when we see someone disabled or suffering, that we assume that it, it sort of has infected the whole person. And I think, in short, they have contempt for the misfortune. That's why Zophar can call Job, in essence, an empty-headed donkey. In a different vein with regard to suffering, you know, C.S. Lewis said something to the effect that, you know, when, when someone is suffering, that oftentimes people would say, well, if I could, I would change places with you. And he said that he thinks one of the reasons that we say that is because, in fact, we can't change places with them. There's something about somebody else suffering that there's a there's a chasm between us oftentimes. But if we're not careful, the chasm is not sort of, you know, we're equally horizontally, but it becomes a vertical situation where those who are at ease are sort of looking down on people who are suffering and just like, well, man, you're on a slippery slope. Your feet are slipping and it's just going to get worse for you. And uh, rather than any type of empathy, there's really, I think, contempt and disdain. Job, I think, could say with the psalmist, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. The only problem for Job is that the proud and the arrogant are his friends. And no wonder he feels, I think, even worse for their having spoken to him. And these friends are so simplistic. Being proud and arrogant, they assume that what has happened to Job is because he's done something wrong. But then Job speaks of those who are at ease, the marauders, those who provoke God, those who carry their God in their hands. These are wicked people, and they seem to have a a pretty easy life. So, my dear friends, you who are mocking me and have real contempt for me because of my situation, how would you explain these people? These wicked people who do so well. I find it interesting, though, that Job is not so concerned with their attitude or their view of human beings as much as their view of God. I think this is really what disturbs Job about his friends. What these men have claimed as special wisdom. Remember, Eliphaz said he had a vision. A spirit went by him. And Bildad said that he had the tradition of the elders on his side. In verses 7 through 10, basically Job says, you know what you've been telling me? The animals know this. Instinctively, creation knows this. The birds, the earth itself, the fish of the sea. Who doesn't know that God is in control? 
Instinctively, intuitively, God's creation knows that God does all of these things. So for these three friends to sit in judgment on Job and say, well, Job, God must have done this. Job's like, really? (laughs) Birds know that. Fish know that. What makes you so wise that you've come to that conclusion? Zophar, who knows so much, actually knows less than animals know instinctively. So, to use his insult of Job, one might actually be better off being an empty-headed donkey than to be someone like Zophar who claims to be so wise. Because at least a donkey knows instinctively that it is God who created things, that the life of every creature is in God's hands. What Zophar needs to do is some serious thinking. And this we find in verse number 11. Does not the ear taste word or test words as the tongue tastes food? While animals react on instinct, human beings have minds. They should think about various things and not simply have a knee-jerk response. I remember some years ago reading, and this is back in the 80s, reading an interview in the L.A. Weekly, an alternative newspaper here in town. Uh, it was an interview with a prominent religious leader. And if I told you his name, you would all know who he was. Uh, Someone who I would say, doctrinally, we would agree with on most issues. I think it might be more style and presentation that we object to with this person. But I only remember one thing from the interview, and it was something that the interviewer noted at the beginning of the interview. And I don't even remember if it's a man or a woman. But the interviewer said that uh, he or she noted that the person being interviewed, this religious leader, responded more out of reflex than reflection. I've never forgotten that. And not as a put down of that religious leader, but I, I ask myself, when I answer people's questions, when I say certain things, am I just reacting on reflex? Or do I really think about what I'm saying? Do I really think about what this person has gone through? I would argue that Job's three friends are not refl- are not responding out of reflection it's pure reflex they have a theological position to defend and they come across something that really is quite foreign to their their theology does not have a way to to answer Job's situation and so they just answer out of reflex instead you know in the same way that you 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 taste food or that you hear words you know, there needs to be this sense of testing them and tasting them and then thinking before you actually speak. What they need to do is actually listen. And in chapter 13, we'll get to that in a few minutes. They're not doing that. They merely hear a challenge to their theological response and they fire away. In the rest of chapter, thir- or chapter 12, we have sort of an interlude, as it's been called by some writers. And the passage may remind you of the Psalms. This would be, I think, good material for a hymn because it it appears to praise the reality of God's control, that God is in control over all things. But as he responded in chapter nine, we find that Job's intent here is not to create a sense of awe or admiration or of worship. How amazing is God that he has done these things? 
Rather, is to spell out in a sort of cold and dark way, uh, calculated way in which God's power and wisdom is worked out in reality. That human beings are powerless to oppose him, that the power of nature, uh, all of nature, has to obey God, that he holds the fate of all, and, and we will read it in a minute, but the deceiver as well as the deceived and everything in between. And then we're given a list of uh, the people that we think are important to human history. Counselors, judges, kings, priests, men long established, trusted advisors, elders, nobles, the mighty. That Job almost sees them as puppets doing what God wants them to do. It is, in many ways, a dark and morbid description of God's inscrutable providence that we really don't have a clue as to what God is doing in the world. But rather than being angry, Job is cooled off and now there's this almost this cold detachment as he looks at the world and says, man, you guys don't have a clue as to what's going on. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse 12. Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows men long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. As I said, on the one hand, one might see this as a psalm of praise, but that I don't think is Job's intent. I do not think his intent is evil, but as he looks at things, God is no doubt in control. Ask the fish, they know that. Ask the birds, they know that. But as Job sees it, It's not a pretty picture that what happens in human history, the rising and falling of nations and of individuals, this is God's doing. Now we come to chapter 13, and it is Job's second complaint against his friends. Job has just given a critique of God's actions in world history. And so as chapter 13 opens, he once again makes the claim to know as much about God and his attributes and what God is doing as his friends. He needs no help from them. He needs no lessons or advice from them. He has a pretty good idea of what is what. They've made two big mistakes. One is they haven't listened to what Job has been saying. We saw that with Zophar in particular, that he misquotes Job. He thinks Job says one thing, but Job actually said something else. And secondly, they've done a really bad job of defending God. And I think this is just as irritating and annoying to Job 
as is the first issue. Let's begin with verse number one. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. I think Job has said some important things there. He wants them to be quiet. Please just listen to what I have to say. They've been too busy talking and trying to straighten him out to listen to him. So Job wants their silence. Not because what they have to say isn't important. That's part of it. But he wants their loyalty. He wants them to stand with him. In giving their advice, they have done more harm than they have done good. They're worthless physicians. And more than that, they've distorted the truth. They have lied about Job. They have smeared him with lies. They have claimed that Job has committed some huge sin that Job knows about and is unwilling to admit. And thus they have defamed him. They've lied about him. But as I said, they've also done more harm than good. How, how is it that the friends have done this? The truth be known, none of his friends have a theological explanation for what is happening to him. It simply is outside the boundaries of their theological knowledge. They should have just, and when they realize that, they should have just not said anything and sat with him as they did the first seven days with the sacrament of silence. Instead, they speak of what they know nothing of. They are unable to face the hard facts. And so they try to heal him. As one author puts it, the equivalent of putting a band-aid on cancer. Um, They have really no answers for what Job is going through. Instead, they, they come out with this simplistic notion of God's justice to what is a very complex and contradictory situation. They've lied about Job. More than that, they have defended God's ways falsely. So they are called forgers of lies. They speak wickedly on God's behalf. They speak deceitfully for him. Now look, if you would, beginning in verse 6. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out as well... If he examined you, could you deceive him as you might deceive men? He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. In claiming to speak for God, they have actually spoken against God and they have spoken things that are not true. Imagine going to a doctor and perhaps this has happened to you and the doctor can't figure out what's wrong with you but decides to guess to try this and to try that. 
Doctors can't know everything. They should be willing to admit as much, and I think oftentimes they do. You don't want them guessing with your health. Well, Job's friends have been guessing with his life. They've been guessing about his status before God, what God is doing in his life. So Job asked them a series of questions, which boil down to one. Do you feel you have the right to defend God and his ways? Even if you have to use lies, falsehood, and deception to do it. And if you use lies and falsehood, how do you think God is going to take this? How do you think God is going to respond? Do you think you can deceive him, Job asked? Don't you think his awesomeness will terrify you? See, you can't justify lying if it, even if it's for a good purpose. Even if it's to bring Job to a place of repentance. So Job tells them, your maxims are proverbs of ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. In other words, guys, you have nothing of value to say to me. He wants them to listen, and so now he will speak. And this is where we will close today in verses 13 through 17. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Verse 15, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. And this is where um, next week the Lord willing will pick up at verse number 18. He wants them to listen to what he has to say. And in fact, they, on some level, they do listen. This triggers the whole next cycle of speeches. He wants them to listen because he is going to attempt and, and try to get an audience with God, to get a hearing with God, no matter what the consequences may be. He asks, why do I put my life in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Well, it is because of what we find in verse 15, which is probably the best known verse in the book of Job. Oftentimes people don't know that it comes from the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. The King James has, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Let me just take an aside here for a few minutes. Most of the modern English translations go in the opposite direction. And in fact, if you have an NIV, if you look at the bottom, the, the alternative reading it gives you is, is actually the opposite. Uh, or he will surely slay me, I have no hope. That rather than it being a statement of faith, it is a statement of hopelessness. And there are two reasons for the different translations. One is textual. The other is a matter of interpretation. Uh, translation and interpretation actually go hand in hand. Um, I would tell you that the older texts support the reading that we find here and in the King James. Then why do the English translations have the opposite? That God is going to kill me and I have no hope. I think because many find it impossible to believe that in the midst of his sort of calling God to task and saying, what's going on here? I want an answer. They find it difficult to believe that in the midst of that, Job would make this amazing affirmation of faith. But we've seen in our study that that is the tension of this whole problem. I mean, that is what this is all about for Job. And that is that Job refuses to give up his faith and hope in God. 
He refused to do, to do so. His wife told him early on, get it over with. Just let go. Let God kill you, basically. But Job hangs on. Job will not let go. He will not let go of his life. He will not commit suicide. He will not let go of his faith. He will not abandon his faith in God. Many people have quoted this particular passage as much as to declare their unswerving faith in God. But few have experienced what Job did. Physical pain, psychological despair, social, social rejection, <clears throat> spiritual condemnation. Because if you remember, Job honestly believes that God has abandoned him <clears throat> and that when Job dies, he will not go into the presence of God, but into the place of deepest darkness. Which is quite remarkable. I mean, yet he keeps his faith in God. This man who is convinced that God is going to send him to hell. I think Job's condition makes his statement so powerful. That for the mocking friends, the friends who do not stand with him, who laugh at him, who think they know better than he does. His circumstances scream at him. God has abandoned you. But Job will not turn his back on God. So I said, the Lord willing, we will pick this up next week at verse number 18. Let me just close with a few concluding thoughts. First of all, humility is the course of wisdom. It's better to be humble and, and to admit that you don't know than to fake wisdom and pretend you know something that, in fact, you don't know. <clears throat> why is it so hard for people, why is it so hard for Christians to admit that they don't know? I had an interesting conversation the other day with several colleagues who were going for coffee and we were staying in the hallway of the department. And... Um, and this one colleague was describing another teacher, not in our university, and just, just ridiculing this teacher for, for being the dumbest person she had ever heard of in her life. And I'm like, why would you say that? And, and she told me the story that one time in lecture, somebody asked a question, a historical question, to which no reasonable, reasonable person could claim to know the answer. Any answer you would give would be only your opinion. That's all it can be, because we just don't know the answer to that. And so this person gave the answer, and my colleague was saying, what a dumb answer that was. And, um, and they were all suggesting other answers. And I said, well, why doesn't she just use the, the magical three words, I don't know? And, boy, you would have thought I'd lit a bomb or something in there. I mean, it's like, who are you? I mean, we're in the university. We know everything. I find that in the university, and sadly, I find it among God's people. The reality is we don't know. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We fear God because oftentimes we haven't got a clue as to what he's doing in the world. And to somehow claim to know, I think, is false wisdom. We're being worthless physicians. Be humble. Secondly, and I think this goes without saying, but <clears throat> in today's world, perhaps it needs to be said again, that we should not use deception for God's purposes. Um, 
we know that from scripture that God has used people's lies, people's deceptions. God has used them. But I think that speaks of speaks of God. It doesn't encourage us or it shouldn't encourage us to lie. And in, a, in an age of manipulation, I think it is. It's tragic. It's it's incredibly sad that we find God's people using tricks of manipulation in order to bring people into the kingdom of God. These friends wanted Job to repent. And so they're playing. They threw out the rule book. They're doing everything they can, including lying to get Job to repent. God will accomplish his purposes with or without us. We don't need to resort to falsehood. And lastly, um, I have in my notes reflection, not reflex. We need to listen when people talk to us. We need to listen when people are in distress. You know, and if we don't have anything to say, if we don't know the answers, then we just need to be quiet. I mentioned last week that in my position as a pastor, people are always asking me why. Why has this happened to me? As, as though, I guess, my education would somehow, or perhaps I have a special channel to God that he lets me know these things. I don't know. Job's friends don't know. And you know what? If the book of Job tells us what is complete, or it's complete in what it tells us, uh, they never find out. Job never finds out. God doesn't tell Job at the end, oh, by the way, Satan came up and he was talking about you and that you only worship me for the good things. And so I, I let him do. They never find out. They don't know. And so when someone comes in the midst of perhaps physical pain or psychological distress or social rejection, as Job experienced, or maybe they feel alienated from God. I don't think it is our place to give them answers. There are times perhaps when we should, but what we should do, I think, is what Job encourages them. Please be silent and listen to me. And say to someone, you know, I don't, I don't have any answers for you, but I can sit here with you. I can stand next to you. I can be your friend. That's what Job wanted. And it's what his friends didn't give him. Because it was a knee-jerk response. You challenge God, you must be evil. I need to defend God. Don't worry about God, he'll take care of himself. What we need to do is stand with our friends. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for all that it teaches us. But may we embrace humility to acknowledge that we don't know all of your word. And even if we did, we wouldn't have all the wisdom of the ages. We wouldn't have special insight into why you are doing what you are doing in the world or in the lives of individuals. But you have given us the gift of faith. And by your grace and your spirit, may we trust you and may we stand or sit with those who are in need and recognize that 
But sometimes what we need to do is just listen. What we need to do sometimes is just be quiet. Your providence is unscrutable. Uh, unscrutable week. We don't always, or most of the time, understand why you allow certain things to happen. But you made this world, you sustain it. You made us and you sustain us. And you are in the process of reconciling us to yourself, of bridging the chasm and of recreating us in the image of your Son. May we not lose heart. May we not lose hope or faith. But say with Job that even though you would kill us, we would not let go of our faith. I thank you for this time that we could spend together today in worship. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? Bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.